0: Oh, and welcome to another episode of Shadow Talk, Digital Shadows, Weekly Cyber Threat Intelligence and Information Security Podcast. My name is Chris and I'll be hosting this week and I'm joined by two members of the Photon crew and that's Ivan over in Dallas. How are you doing, Ivan? Doing great, man. Thanks for having me. Good stuff. Thanks for joining as always. And from Colorado, Austin. How's things, Austin?
1: Doing great. Quick trip to Dallas and I'm back in Colorado. so
0: ready to you, had a, you had a good time over there?
1: Yeah, it's great to collaborate work with the team and, you know, a little change of scenery.
0: Yeah, definitely. I was down in London uh, last week and did the podcast from there. Yeah, just really, really good to see everyone in face-to-face and do it all in the same room. But uh, hey-ho, we're back to remote, so there we are. Um, So it's been a pretty busy week in the world of CTI. So we've seen uh, the German police, along with assistance from U.S. officials, take down the Hydra Marketplace, which was believed to be the largest cybercriminal marketplace for narcotic sales, malware, uh, money laundering, all sorts of bad activity. Um, There's also been a series of fairly high profile data breaches this week. So this affected email provider MailChimp and separately the cash app mobile payment system. So once again, highlighting that data is very highly susceptible to being breached pretty much whatever service you use um, I th- I've just had to have a change in mentality really I kind of assume it will be breached, be breached at this point point. Um, and on the nation state side of things APT10 who were perhaps the most prolific or well-known of the Chinese nation state groups um, they've been identifying uh, they've been identified conducting a wide-ranging months-long espionage campaign against organizations in the government legal and religious sectors as well as Other NGO organizations in the US and other countries. And researchers have said that this activity stems from uh, Microsoft Exchange servers. Um, Yep, I'm sure you remember those from last year, um, which were used to gain access in some cases. And of course, APT 10 are probably best known for attempting to steal. Uh, Military intelligence documents, um, business secrets from targets, which is probably the motivation here. Long term access and exfiltration of sensitive data, the standard stuff you'll get from a Chinese APT. Uh, But we'll move on to our first discussion item for today. And that's related to the Spring for Shell vulnerability that had security teams scrambling last week. Uh, Spring for Shell is a, a remote code execution vulnerability uh, discovered in a Java-based Spring framework. So, yeah, another Java-based brook with serious ramifications. So, Austin, could you quantify for the audience what is the risk from Spring for Shell?
1: Yeah, I'd be happy to. It's like you were saying, it is Spring framework. It's a Java platform. It provides infrastructure support for <clears throat> Java applications. So there is a risk here uh, because this is another ubiquitous um Framework within Java. So it, it can be potentially widespread. However, I think some of the risk has been maybe over exaggerated. There's been a lot of hype around it. Um, you know, rightfully so. We just came off the heels of, of Log4Shell, which we're going to talk about the similarities. Um, but even Microsoft has admitted as much as that there's been a rather low volume of exploitation attempts so far. I and mean, this was uh, disclosed towards the end of March. Um, so here we are going on second week of April. But what could happen here is an attacker could, they could t- change the default access logs in a Tomcat server. Tomcat's a popular web server used in Java. Um, and they could change the logging properties, and then use a HTTP requests to create a payload <clears throat> in the server's root directory. Um, <clears throat> the payload is a remote code execution. Um, so we're all familiar with the risk with that. However, the, the current exploits right now rely on criteria that aren't the default for most broad, modern Spring applications, so that's why the risk isn't as high because the there's steeper requirements to actually make this exploitation possible.
0: I see. So, kind of a classic case of you know perhaps the media um, you know bending this out of proportion as opposed to the actual risk it proposes. Um, why did the the security community immediately relate this to Log4Shell? Is it just because it's uh, like you said a another Java-based book?
1: Yeah, it's interesting um, because while it's being referred to as Spring 4 Shell, they actually initially just called it Spring Shell, um, but it it took on, I guess, an identity of its own with all the media coverage. So now everyone's just referring to it as Spring 4 Shell. But the similarities here with Log4 Shell is they're both remote code execution vulnerabilities that exist in uh, Java frameworks. Um, And they're both widely used, but Spring FourShell shell doesn't seem to have the same widespread impact. And that's simply because it's not as easily exploitable as Log4Shell was.
0: Excellent. Well, that's good to hear first and foremost, because I'm sure we had some uh, horrendous memories of Log4Shell. Um, obviously that wasn't that long ago. Um, what should organizations be doing with this this particular bug at this time?
1: Yeah, I, I think the, the biggest thing is um, updating the Spring framework to the latest versions, uh, which are 5.3.18, 5.2.20, uh, just add an av- abundance of caution. Um, but they should also be upgrading Tomcat to, um, there's three different versions that they recommend uh, recommend upgrading to, uh, just because that's the avenue that can be used to exploit this vulnerability. Um, so I think that would be the best steps to take.
0: I see, I see. I, Ivan, any any thoughts on, on this particular book?
2: uh not at the moment i think austin covered it pretty well
0: good stuff yeah good good to note there austin that you know as you said the the risk has perhaps been over exaggerated to a certain extent you know particularly with the the low volume of um, exploitation attempts Uh, but as always you know patching is the the way out of many of these issues Um, we'll move on to the the next item Um, and you may have seen reporting identifying a new remote access trojan that Interestingly, has been named Borat. I'm sure many of our uh, listeners remember the infamous character from Sasha Baron Cohen, um, and that's appeared on many darknet markets, offering easy-to-use features to conduct DDoS attacks, uh, user access control bypasses, and uh, actually the re- deployment of ransomware, which is really interesting. Um, so, over to you, Ivan. Um, could you give us a few more details on exactly, you know, what is Borat Rat and, and what its capabilities? Um, and is this more sophisticated than others of a similar nature?
2: Sure, yeah. So Borat RAT is a remote access Trojan, and uh, it allegedly has many capabilities to allow users to perform DDoS attacks, key logging, uh, steal credentials, and they can even be used to deploy ransomware. So since it is a RAT, uh, it can also allow the threat actors to remotely control uh, the victim's devices, such as it, the mouse, the keyboard and it can also give the threat actor access to the victim's files. So it is a lot like the other rats we have seen, but it does have some additional capabilities that makes it not not only a rat, but also it could be considered a spyware, ransomware, or even a DDoS tool. So it's very easy to use, and that's what makes it a very attractive tool
0: for cybercriminals. I see. So it has as you know really kind of rigid and uh i say rigid that's the wrong word uh, a huge array of functionality that it can, can it can draw upon and obviously it's quite easy to use um do you think this represents a significant development of, of cyber criminal activity or you know how might its use impact the the cyber threat landscape as a whole
2: so i wouldn't call it a significant development because uh, we have seen similar malware in the past uh, with many capabilities and functionalities but this malware is definitely not a joke and it has a very long list of functionalities that makes it a swiss knife uh, for cyber criminals and uh, as far as the impact on the threat landscape that remains to be seen it really depends on how reliable the tool is how accessible it is to other cyber criminals and uh, we don't know at the moment who is using the tool and uh, if it's up for sale or maybe if it's being offered for free but it, it depending on all these factors uh, if the threat actors can get their hands on this and if it works as advertised then it could definitely have a large impact on the threat landscape
0: I see um do you think that that cyber criminal activity is is perhaps becoming easier overall you know we've talked about the um, the professionalization of, of cyber criminal um, activity in the past you know to, 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 to quite a large extent. Um, do you think the bar of entry for for less experienced actors is p- perhaps becoming lowered?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, back in the day, cyber criminals they had to build uh, build other own tools and exploits, but nowadays you can just create an account on a criminal forum and download any hacking tool that you may want for a very small cost, and some are even available for free. Uh, in addition, there are many guides and tutorials everywhere giving you like a step by step instruction on how to become a hacker. So anyone with enough dedication and time, can learn how to become a cyber criminal these days now tools like this one definitely lower the entry bar and uh this is likely a trend that we're going to keep seeing and happen in the future
0: see i think i feel like we're almost advertising this this route um of cyber criminal activity we're, we're almost suggesting look you can do this it's easy but you got these really easy tools to uh, to facilitate your access uh, austin any thoughts on this particular rat
1: um a <clears throat> big fan of the movie uh <laughs>
0: Yeah, me too. No, yeah. The first one at least.
1: A, <laughs> No, I, I can't say I'm um as knowledgeable or familiar with this one as Ivan and as Ivan is, but yes, um it's uh to be you know not taken lightly. W- whether the risk is uh considered high or the risk is considered low with these, I think you have to um take all necessary precautions.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, despite its name, no laughing matter. Um I, I'll have to check into exactly why they called it Borat. Um a yeah, bit of a funny one there um we'll move on to the the last item uh, for today and this is something i've i've read up uh, quite a bit this week um i've actually written in some on this particular topic and recent reporting on the carbonat group who you know you might have heard uh, referred to as fin seven um they've um essentially been uh, conducting a bit of a demonstrable shift in their methods um, in you know, comparison to what they you know, perhaps started uh, to do in 2013, um, Carbonac are a financially motivated group, mostly known for targeting financial companies through the use of social engineering attacks, um, largely going after kind of payment card information, going after ATMs, um, point of sale systems, that sort of thing. And their new focus has shifted to the use of compromising web infrastructure associated with companies selling digital products uh, before corrupting download links to upload its power plant malware. And Carbonac have um, interestingly been also associated with facilitating, uh, just butchered that word there, facilitating access for several ransomware groups, uh, which again was a, a really interesting development. So several of the ones you'll know about, DarkSide, um, Alfv, Uh, which other one, Ryuk, uh, I think they're all associated with Carbonac activity. Um, So the first question I want to pose to you both today, uh, Ivan, is, um, you know, other than (laughs) the description I just gave, to be fair, um, who are Carbonac and uh, what are their usual TTPs?
2: Okay, so their their usual tactics involve spear phishing emails and uh, malicious attachments. And uh, these attachments usually download a combination of open source and custom malware, uh, other tactics that usually involve uh, exfiltration and exploitation of payment, payment card data uh, and through the use of point-of-sales malware, POS. Uh, now, it does seem that Fin7 has recently evolved their tools to include a PowerShell backdoor named PowerPlant, and it's now being used by a lot of ransomware gangs to deploy ransomware. Uh, Fin7 in the past, they also had many members being arrested by U.S. law enforcement but it doesn't really seem like this has stopped the group from wanting to conduct attacks.
0: Yeah, that was one of the uh, the points I raised on the interim, actually, is that they were quite resilient, considering that they had some of their members arrested in 2018, uh, which sort of distinguishes them from other cyber criminal groups who have been targeted by similar law enforcement activity. And immediately, the reaction appears to be kind of go on the ground, you know, rebrand, you know, maybe go and work on another project. Uh, but Carbonac have, you know, been quite resilient in the fact that they've, They've stuck around for this, this amount of time. Um, I, I saw as well, you know, interestingly, uh, with the group, they do seem quite innovative in the techniques in that they, um, uh, I think we reported on this actually on one of the previous podcasts, but they were sending USBs with malware on to, to kind of targeted companies, um, just expecting someone would be uh, silly enough to actually unplug that. And um, they also created a fake pen testing company as well, um, with un- unexpecting IT specialists you know perhaps assisting them with gaining initial access at, at certain companies. so you know really really innovative uh, but sophisticated group. Um, Austin, do you think that their um, association with ransomware activity you know, might represent an increased risk uh, or is this something perhaps that's been ongoing for, for many years?
1: I, it has been going on for some years and we know this because of their uh, affiliation, we don't know exactly what the affiliation is, but we know that there's been evidence of fin seven intrusions right before ransomware attacks. Um, but we know that this has been going on for some time because some of these groups are maze and dark side. We know maze was really popular two years ago. Uh, so it's something that has been going on for a while, but I would say anytime there's a, any kind of affiliation with ransomware, I, I do consider it an increased risk, you know, Ransomware is always a top level threat in the, in the last couple of years. Um, and even as recently as last October, Fin7 was exposed for setting up a, like a fake pen testing firm <clears throat> to hire uh, pen testers, um, which obviously is a very instrumental part of staging a ransomware attack. Um, and with groups like this, we can see an ebb and flow in periods of, of activity. Um, so even though that was <clears throat> something that was exposed six months ago, um, I don't think you can ever downplay the threat of ransomware or, or, or any organized cyber criminal group um, making connections with them.
0: Definitely. What, what I took away from this is that it might not represent uh, an increased risk from ransomware. Obviously, the, the risk is already you know very, very high, right? But it just demonstrates that incident response have so much to think about in terms of stopping that initial access or stopping ransomware activity, because it's not just Exploiting vulnerabilities, uh, spear phishing emails—you know, going after exposed remote services. There's other things that these groups can do to get onto your network, like, you know, the example we've given with Carbonac and the fact that they've conducted basically a supply chain compromise. They've used, um, like this, this fake pen testing company. So much out of the box thinking that you just wouldn't really expect. Um, another question I wanted to pose to both of you as well is. Um this is a group like many cyber criminal groups that have, is composed from you know many different people from parts of the world but include Russia and Ukraine. so how might the makeup makeup actually be impacted by the uh, the ongoing war between these two countries?
1: yeah I guess you you never know what the makeup of the team is. like you said, these we've seen evidence of um, Russian language cyber criminals operating from all different parts of the world. It, we've seen especially in the last several months, a lot of uh, collaboration with Chinese language cyber criminals and Russian language cyber criminals. Um, but I think w- when I think of this group, and I think of recently with Conti, if you do have members of a team that are might have some patriotic allegiance to Ukraine or Russia, that could lead to some kind of inner rift um, within the group. So, that, you know, that's something that this geopolitical situation um, affects them in that sense. But if you have people based in Ukraine that are working on this, you know, that could be a disruption to operations as well, because we've seen evidence of cyber criminals being displaced by this conflict, um, which ultimately could affect their operations.
0: Absolutely, yeah, geopolitical events are obviously very highly divisive um, as yeah with we've, we've seen with the the ongoing war and it can influence people to react and and maybe act in a way that is you know unexpected or do things that um, you know you might not anticipate from them. Um, Ivan, any thoughts from you on this one? Well, I think
2: uh, it's just one of those things where, uh, if you have members from all these countries, like Austin said, you know, it can cause a lot of internal conflict. Conti was a very good example where they announced that they were in support of the Russian government. Uh, they eventually retracted that statement and just um, made it, just saying that if anybody targeted critical infrastructure in Russia, they would retaliate. But uh, that eventually led to a security researcher from Ukraine leaking a lot of their chats and internal data in the source code for conti as well so if they have any ties to russia or if they express any support for russia even if that's internally that could cause a lot of issues with uh a lot of the other affiliates uh that may be operating
0: within ukraine or countries that support ukraine absolutely yeah i'm almost expecting more of these kind of conti leaks type scenarios to to happen for other groups this is obviously a very very divisive conflict. And as it draws on, um, I'd imagine we'll see more of that kind of thing going forward. Um, Thank you both very much. Um, I'll end the podcast just by mentioning some of the um, excellent blogs that we've released this week, um, including, funny enough, one on the uh, leak of chat logs from the Conti ransomware group, which, again, as I'm sure you'll remember, you know, as Ivan just mentioned, uh, this occurred after a Ukrainian researcher actually reacted to that that stance uh, from Conti on the, the ongoing Russia Ukraine war. Um, So in the blog, we've identified a number of insights, including the working patterns of the group, their hierarchy and their account usage, and a a timeline of posts that are aligned to actual uh, attacks committed by Conti. We've also written a blog related to our recent SAT exercise. That's a structured analytical technique exercise on lapsus and the motivations of the group. Uh, This identifies why a SAT can be useful Uh, what we found in our exercise of a team a versus team b sat and um you know some thoughts over you know what our conclusions were on this particular exercise um these are great you know definitely something we want to do more often um so be sure to check out the blog and we've also issued a stand up podcast in the last week on this sat uh, which will be included on the show notes and last but not least Uh, This morning we've issued, uh, this morning I say uh, Thursday, the the 7th of April, uh, we've issued a further blog detailing uh, intelligence collection plans and how they can plan your response uh, to major incidents. And thinking back on the last 12 months, we've obviously had a huge amount of external events that have definitely met this threshold. So absolutely a good idea to take a look at this blog and how you might be able to fine tune your internal processes. Um, That's it for today. I'd like to take this chance to thank all of you for tuning in this week stay safe and we'll see you soon goodbye